Welcome to the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove. Today, we're going to talk about the strategic defense impacts of climate change. If you've tuned into the Climate Hour before, you've heard us explain that the burning of fossil fuels has led to an increase in greenhouse gases that have trapped the heat from the sun and increased the average of our planet's surface temperature, that this global warming is causing the planet's climate patterns to change, and that this climate change is leading to an increase in the frequency and severity of natural weather disasters. But we really haven't explored the global impacts of these weather disasters. We're talking about nations that are becoming deserts or submerged under rising oceans. We're talking about massive crop failures that lead to starvation, the loss of drinking water and the spread of infectious diseases, epidemics and pandemics. We're joined on Zoom by Wendell Chris King, retired Brigadier General US Army and Dean Emeritus of the US Army Command and General Staff College. General King has served our nation for 45 years. He holds a PhD in environmental engineering, a master's degree in civil engineering from Tennessee Technical University, and another master's degree in national security and strategic studies from the Naval War College. Before we get into um, current issues, can you tell us a little bit about your early background? What brought you to environmental issues and led you to pursue a career in the military? Well, uh, the career in military came first. Uh, I have an R had an ROTC scholarship to get my bachelor's degree in chemical engineering at Tennessee Tech University. And while I was finishing that degree, they offered an opportunity as a senior engineer to select electives that went towards environmental science and environmental engineering studies. And I took a course in air pollution engineering as one of my senior electives. And the person that I took the course from offered me a master's degree opportunity as one of his uh, student, uh, uh, graduate student helpers. Uh, and it seemed like a really good opportunity and it was something I really enjoyed studying. So I went from a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering, was commissioned as a an army ordnance officer, and then was extended at, uh, at the college for a year and a half to finish a master's in environmental engineering. So I entered the army with a bachelor's and a master's degree, and the army immediately took me and put me into the Army Medical Service Corps, which is where they had their environmental and sanitary engineers. And this was 1974. And if you think about the history of environmental compliance and environmental protection in the United States, many of the laws, the air laws, the water laws, it was even before we got into the hazardous waste laws, but it, many of those were promulgated in the late 60s and early 70s, and they were coming into force where industry and federal facilities had to comply with those laws in the early 70s. So the Army immediately took me and put me into a job where I could apply my environmental engineering to their needs because the Army has many big cities that it runs, such as Fort Bragg and Fort Campbell and Fort Benning, but it also has a huge industrial complex where it makes the materials it needs to fight our nation's war, such as ammunition. And large petroleum depots and all kinds of hazardous waste that are used in military applications. And my job in the early years in the Army was to study those places where the Army had issues and bring them into compliance with those new, flare, new uh, 
federal laws, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, Safe Drinking Water Act, and those kinds of things. So uh, let's put it this way, in the Army terms, in the early 1970s, as an environmental engineer for the Army, it was a target-rich environment, Bob. Uh, <laughs> a lot to do. And uh, there was a legacy stuff back to World War I, uh, where we had extensively uh, dumped stuff, buried stuff, uh, not properly disposed of stuff that still had to be cleaned up. And when the Superfund was passed, uh, then all of those federal facilities, uh, particularly the Army facilities, came under scrutiny for the, uh, for the Superfund Act. In fact, at one time, one of the places I worked on was a place called Rocky Mountain Arsenal. It's in Colorado. Uh, and it was considered probably the dirtiest place on earth because of the extent of contamination at Rocky Mountain Arsenal. Now, we later found out it wasn't even close to many of the places that were contaminated by the Russians during the Soviet area, uh, but uh, it was a mess, and it was billions of dollars to clean that up. So that's my background and how I started in the Army. I worked air pollution problems. I worked uh, drinking water problems. I worked uh, say, uh, clean water, cleaning up uh, basically sanitary waste from uh, large uh, installations, and I had a, I had a very, very wide, broad background of things that I dealt with early in my career as a sanitary and environmental engineer. Sounds like you kind of grew up with the, the, the growth of environmental legislation in the U.S. It, it, really, it really was that. In, in uh, 1980 was when the hazardous waste laws, the RICRA, were passed, where we had uh -huh. uh, cradle-to-grave control of things that were defined as hazardous waste. Uh, and I was the guy that they said, here, read this and figure out what it means to the Army and then tell us what we're going to have to do about it. What we had to do is we had to go permit nearly every installation in the United States Army because every one of them had RICRA defined hazardous waste. Uh, and that was a massive undertaking. But uh, yeah, yeah, I grew up in, and lived with the early, early implementation of the major uh, environmental laws and regulations. And, and quite honestly, I'm pretty proud of that because I, I always tell people when I teach that I don't think we did it as uh, efficiently as we could, but I do believe we were effective in doing a lot of good from what we saw in the 50s and 60s to where we were by the middle late 1980s. Can you tell us about some of your, your major military experiences, particularly those kinds of operations that would have involved natural or man-made disasters or mass migrations, refugee populations, that sort of thing? The first significant thing I did was a, a humanitarian operation in the United States. I was stationed in Colorado working a lot on the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, and a tornado went through a little town in, in, uh, in Colorado, it just wiped it out. Uh, and the National Guard asked for some public health help about doing the cleanup out there. Mainly they were concerned about the health of their uh, soldiers that were gonna be out working around, they weren't sure what. Uh, and so we were involved, I was involved in looking at the public health implications of a humanitarian disaster like that. That was an interesting one. The next one that was really, really eye-opening to me and, and probably put me on the course to studying environmental security, which I have been doing for the last 25 years, 
was the Rwanda Relief Mission. 1994, there was a genocide in Rwanda and more than a million people were killed in 100 days. The tribes with the Hutus and Tutsis, arbitrary thing that was actually created by colonialism, not by the Africans themselves. But the United States made the decision to go to Goma Zaire and deal with a million refugees that were uh, had left Rwanda to try to escape the genocide and were living in refugee camps at, uh, on Go- in Goma Zaire. At the time that we went to the mission, there were 5,000 people a day dying, dying from cholera, which was coming from contaminated drinking water uh, because there was no clean source drinking water and there was no proper sanitation. So it's a vicious cycle of poor sanitation creates contaminated water and contaminated food. And then uh, from that, the diseases come out. Quite honestly, cholera is probably the weakest of all of the really bad, bad things that you can catch in Africa. But when you have a million people that are being exposed to it, even a, a, a fairly innocuous normally, Disease like cholera can kill a lot of people if you can't do anything for them medically. And so we went and spent about 100 days in Africa providing logistics. We, we didn't provide the medical treatment. It was those wonderful people such as Doctors Without Borders and, and those kind of non-governmental organizations that were providing the direct medical assistance. But the United States Army provided logistics uh, we provided infrastructure development, and we provided force protection for those people that were in, in that condition in Zaire at that time. The thing that got me, Bob, was trying to figure out why. It, it, it's, it's like you can't keep treating symptoms. You've got to figure out what the root causes or thing, of things are. Many people were studying that, and some of the folks thought that one of the very strong contributing factors was human pressure on the environment in Rwanda that had caused a conflict for limited resources, water, arable lands, that caused two people who had gotten along together, two groups of people who had gotten along together for such a long period of time, to decide that they were going to murder each other. Well, I think when your natural resources are threatened, you have no choice, do you? You don't. You my studies in environmental securities over the last 25 years, it finally got my aha moment, hit your head, Homer. The basic cause of environmental security issues is when people don't have their basic human needs met. When something changes in the environment, whether it's natural or man-made, that they no longer have the water that they need that's safe to drink, to produce the food they need, uh, to provide proper sanitation uh, that s- sustains them from the weather conditions, whatever they might be. When people are denied those things, uh, then they're put in an insecure condition where they have to find some way to change. And you just mentioned several of them. Well, does that create uh, massive refugee movements around? Uh does it create disease? Yes, that's why we were in Goma Zaire is because those conditions then, uh, disease follows disaster just as naturally as anything in the world. Does uh, it cause civil wars you mentioned in Rwanda? I, yeah, civil wars. You either fight over resources somebody else has had or you move. You, it's either fight or flight, as we mm-hmm. say in the military. Those are your two choices. Okay. 
when it gets down to being that stark a condition. And, and we need to take lessons from that in the United States. Look what's going on in the Western United States right now, as far as water resources. Lake Mead's at the lowest letter levels it's ever been. Uh, the Great Salt Lake's at the lowest level it's ever been that we've seen and recorded in the human history. And they're all tied together. And that brings back to climate change. Absolutely. Climate change doesn't respect borders. It is a global issue. Let's talk a little bit about the um, Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change's Fifth Assessment Report. They emphasize that the actual impacts of climate change will be unevenly distributed across the globe. And we're seeing that. They say that the major areas of impact will be the Nile River Basin and the Tibetan Plateau. Why those regions? I mean, what, what's, what's special about those regions and what kind of impacts are we talking about? Yeah, uh, let's start with the Tibetan Plateau. Okay. That's always the example I use from a military security standpoint. That's the best example I have of why it's environmental security that's being challenged and how drastic this could be. First of all, the Tibetan Plateau is one large watershed. It's a beautiful watershed when it's operating properly, where snow cover collects up into ice pack, into glaciers, and slowly releases the water during the summer periods to feed the seven, seven of the major rivers of the world the Gramaputra, the Yangtze, the Yellow, seven major rivers. Those seven major rivers serve over three and a half billion people. Almost half of the world's population comes off that one watershed. And if you've read the last report, the, the most recent report released by the IPCC, they said the only thing we got wrong in the two previous reports is the rate of decline in the cryosphere. We underestimated it. The ice and snow cover is melting much faster than we thought it was going to th melt 20 years ago. And, and you can go over the science, but the science very strongly supports that. It's a feedback mechanism where ice melts, now you've got ground cover, the ground absorbs much more uh, heat than ice does, which reflects most of the short wavelength back in, uh, short wavelength back into the atmosphere. We, we knew that was an issue. So the Tibetan plateau is collapsing as far as a workable watershed much faster than we thought. Now let's look at it from a military view. When I do strategic analysis of the area, what I see is three of the largest armies in the world that, oh, by the way, don't get along very well right now, India, Pakistan, and China. I also see three of the nuclear powers of the world. All of those possess nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction. Is water something that people will fight over? History proves yes, yes, and yes. There are already conflicts between India and China going on over water. We say it's over land, but it's really the water that's the most critical element in that part of the world. Was China's um, annexation invasion of Tibet, was that driven by what you're <laughs> describing here? Uh, tongue in cheek, I have said that uh, I don't think the Chinese government has any animosity for the Dalai Lama. They just want his water. 
I mean, that's the critical resource. They're already damming and diverting large quantities of water that otherwise would be going into India and Pakistan for their own use in the Western part of their country because those are arid lands that they would like to be able to produce food from because their population continues to grow, not at the rates it used to, but it continues to, to grow there. Uh, the land isn't the value, the water is the value. And certainly India and Pakistan will continue to have their problems uh, from political and other social kinds of challenges. But if water is added to the burden that they have to carry from a political and social standpoint, and they're both very, very large and quite honestly overpopulated for the resources they have, that can become a extreme con source of conflict too for between India and Pakistan. Absolutely. I mean, we've got a smaller version of that um, in the U.S. where we dammed the Colorado River at the Mexican border, diverted yep. all that water to California, and basically turned northern Mexico into a desert. Then we have a, an agreement that says we will allow so much of the water to cross into Mexico from the Colorado River. Mm -hmm. But what are we going to do now that Lake Mead is drying up? A lot less water than there was 10 years ago. Are we going to continue to honor that with Mexico? No, we've already cheated on that. And, and I think it will, it'll be much more difficult for, for us to honor the agreements that we've made with them based on the water shortages that we're seeing in that part of the world right now, in California, in Arizona. And there's things we could do, but we're just not willing to do them. We're not willing to go into significant water uh, resource management systems that make hard choices. Yeah, yeah. So let's move on to the Nile. I mean, Northern Africa, that entire basin. I mean, Northern Africa is really on track to become a desert. <laughs> it's, it's already a desert. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent time in that part of the world. It, 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 they've got a lot of sand, but not so much beach. That's, a, that's another great example of a place where uh, violent security issues could develop uh, between Egypt, which is what occupies most of the boundaries of the, of the, uh, of the Nile River, and then Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan, uh, and the other countries in the upper part of the, of the Nile River Valley. Egypt is sworn that one of their major, probably th their first major uh, security threat is loss of all the waters of the Nile that they need to support their population, which means drinking water and means water to grow food. The Nile is predicted to be significantly less in total flow uh, driven heavily by climate change. The upper riparian countries, uh, particularly Ethiopia, is already building dams to develop a water management system to better control upper Nile waters for themselves. The irony of the whole thing to me, Bob, is if you look at uh, the watershed of the Nile, it starts out in the central part of Africa and it flows north until it goes into the Mediterranean, past Cairo. 100% of that water is produced not in Egypt, but in the upper riparian countries. Aswan Dam 
has a water uh, a station, they have a weather station, and then they measure the amount of water that comes through Aswan that feeds all of all of Egypt. The average of annual rainfall at Aswan in Egypt is 0.00 inches per year. It rains once in a while every couple of years, but not very much. So the whole Nile and Egypt depend on water that falls on other countries. That's why they have one of the largest armies in the world too, to be able to provide for security. And for them, the biggest security threat they have is water security. So, so those nations upriver, you know, as their water needs increase or the water decreases, you're likely to see Egypt taking military action to make sure that water continues to flow. Eritrea and Sudan and uh, Ethiopia have some of the highest population growth rates in the world. So their demand grows. Their demand for energy grows. Many of the dams that Ethiopia are building are multi-use dams. First thing they do is they collect and serve water, save water and allow them to distribute it more evenly. Second thing, they produce hydroelectric power with it, mm-hmm. which is good for us when we think about climate change because that's less right. than burning fossil fuels. But it's not good for, for Egypt. There are, there are answers there. There are, if the countries would work together in unison to develop a, a not a, an Egyptian or an Ethiopian or Eritrean or a Sudanese water management plan, but a Nile River Basin water plan, there's a massive amount of waste that could be eliminated. There's a massive amount of potential electric power that could be generated, and it could all be shared by the countries. And, and uh, I'm not sure it would be a perfect solution, but it would be a much better solution and a whole lot more people would be secure under a, a proper management plan. There, there has been some discussions between Egypt and Ethiopia and some of the other countries there, but the insecurity pressure that's already there, we don't know who will be in the government in Sudan and South Sudan. We don't know what's going to go on politically in Egypt right now. So trying to get to a, uh, I think this is one of the biggest problem we face in our, in our look at how we solve climate change. How do you develop a long-term solution, a solution that you've got to implement over 50 years? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we have governments that change out, even our own government, look what we went through over the last eight years, going from a government that believed in climate change to a government that didn't believe in climate change. And now we're back and the rest of the world looks at us and say, are you guys ever going to make up your mind and do something? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, a unique situation where Egypt is perhaps the strongest nation militarily and what will they do? I mean, that, that's kind of, I mean, back to our Colorado river, Imagine if the water was originating in Mexico and flowing in our direction. What would the United States do if Mexico started um, perhaps violating some of those treaties? Absolutely. We have treaties, the same kind of treaties between ourselves and Canada. What if we flip-flopped that? And, and yeah, uh, our real adversary was, was Mexico, and we, and we had to deal with that uh, it would be, it would, we would probably be in conflict and we may be again. I don't know. 
It's an example. It, it helps us understand where these pressures come from. I mean, water is such a required, it's going to obviously create tensions and national strategic defense issues like this. You know, we can also talk about food. Uh, another one of your summary reports, which was climate change implications for defense. Um, and there you said that food production is likely to fall with lower yields from major crops, including wheat, maize, rice. Climate change is also projected to affect food security by causing large-scale geographical redistribution of fish. This may increase rivalry among states over fishing access. Recently, we're seeing China aggressively expanding throughout the Pacific and the Chinese fishing fleets that are you know, pushing into the territorial waters of the Philippines and other nations. This is, I assume this is an example of what you're talking about. It is, and also that if you look at what's going on in Africa, many of, much of the arable land that's available, uh, you'll find Chinese investment in trying to get control of the arable lands there where the water is plentiful. And, and they will be able to, with the best estimates, to continue to produce food. We also see large Chinese investments in American farming corporations. It's interesting looking at a lot of the, the current international interactions. China is expanding its fishing and you know, into Tibet for the water tables there. Um, what about Russia's invasion, excuse me, annexation of Crimea? Were there climate-related factors in that? I don't think we would be able to guess the, what's in the Russians' mind about that. We know why they want part of the Ukraine. The Ukraine has been known to be the breadbasket of all of Eastern uh, Europe and, and Asia. Anything that moves them more in that area provides them more food security. To, to me, the Russian extent is they would like to build the Soviet Union back. It's political. I think it's got some science to it, but I think it's social too. However it comes out though, without being able to get cooperation in that part of the world, the rest of the world's gonna suffer. Mm -hmm. If they won't join in into a set of agreements that allow us to move forward with climate change and reducing uh, to levels that, that we can live with, we're not going to be able to, to, to implement that. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove, and I'm talking with Brigadier General Wendell Chris King about the strategic defense impacts of climate change. Let's take a look at um, military readiness. I mean, this is kind of your area of expertise. Your, your Cambridge summary report said that the military will be tasked with providing progressively more humanitarian support missions having to organize large-scale logistics support and provide medical resources to respond to epidemic disease, border security operations, and rising tensions over natural resources. Is our military ready for all of this? No. It's, as, as I said, I, I wrote a, a chapter for the book that we presented to NATO, and my significant contribution was we need to educate and train our forces to be ready for those kinds of things. We need to look at the force structure that we have to see if we've got the right kind of resources allocated for those kinds of mission. 
We may need more engineering. We may not. When we did the Rwanda mission in 1994, our biggest struggle was to find the number of water treatment units that we needed to provide for a million people. That's a huge force. The United States Army didn't have it. We got all of the water treatment systems that we had in Europe that belonged to the NATO forces there. We brought those to the Africa just to provide water to that one million refugees. What is this five times that? We're at a loss for that. So the military needs to think their way through it. And by the way, they're, they're not ignorant of that. There's a lot of study going on as to what are those future missions? How do we respond for, to them? What are the worst case scenarios? What's the most likely scenario? What's the strategic analysis of what the future looks like? It needs to be considered part of our national security strategy as much as anything else, how we're going to respond to challenges that climate change is going to prevent to international security. Again, it's everybody wins or everybody loses. We can't say, nah, that's way over there. That won't impact us if it's middle of Africa or into Asia or something like that. Because the truth of the matter is that's just wrong. That's wrong thinking. There, there is no security unless we can establish for basic human needs for a, the vast majority of the world population. Well, that's very true. Is our military keeping up with the curve? I mean, we see climate change coming at us down the road. I mean, it's here now. We see what's going to happen 10 years, 30 years from now as the military is planning. Are they going to be ready for that 30-year crisis that happens? Right now, we're in the study period trying to do the strategic analysis. What are the most likely consequences of climate change over the next 10, 20, 30 years? What are the strategies? The two things that we do is, one is we have to look at how they're going to impact our operability as a military. If it's a lot hotter in places, can we go there and operate? Can we find ways that we can have the water that we need if we deploy if we take a large force somewhere, like we, when we went to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you know what we did over there? We all drank bottled water. There was so much bottled water laying around over there. We all got two liter bottles. And if you're in Kuwait or Saudi Arabia in July, it's 120. Uh, you go through several of those two liter bottles of water. Can we do that any place in the world? No, we can't do We were able to do that because Saudi Arabia had distillation units on both the, the both sides of the country and they were able to crank those up and produce the bottled water we needed. And we could fly in massive quantities of bottled water. Just as one example, are we going to be able to operate any place in the world that we might need to go, have the water, have the fuel that we'll need for our for our units, have the knowledge of what that mission is going to be. We've got a lot of work to do still as a military to, to solve those problems. But like I said, there's a lot of planning and forethought and uh, discussion going on right now. Uh, I think I think we'll see more action because the national security strategy as of last year and the national security strategy of this year, last year it said nothing about climate change. In fact, it was it, it was antagonistic towards any consideration of climate change. Now it directly recognizes that climate change is going to create severe consequences that have security consequences for the United States, and we have to start dealing with it. 
operability in a worldwide strategy, you really have to think your way through uh, how you deploy forces. How do you protect them? Uh, the last time I deployed to Africa, it took 12 shots. I almost grimace when I think about army guys don't want to take a shot for COVID. And I stood there and kind of held my arms down and say, give it to me because I hit both arms when you're taking 12. Mm-hmm. They had these big guns and they shoot you with both arms. Uh, and these, these are just inoculations. That's for, the inoculations for yellow yeah. fever, typhoid. Uh, right. All the and that doesn't cover half of what's in Africa that can that can make you sick because of the vector-borne diseases or waterborne or uh, even atmospheric-borne diseases that are over there. What about the melting of the Arctic ice cap? I mean, suddenly that's a navigable ocean. As, does that raise security concerns with, with a potential enemy just sailing across the top of the planet? That's the scariest thing the Navy's facing besides Norfolk going under from sea level rise. You, uh, Army North is responsible for that region. They, we, we divided the world into geography and different commands have different areas of responsibility. Uh, NORTHCOM DOD NORTHCOM is responsible for North and Southern hemispheres. They have been studying for the last several years, at least 10 years, significantly. All right, first one, how do we defend it? What are the legal responsibilities for us and the other nations? Certainly trafficability is one. Who do those resources belong to? There are a myriad of problems and opportunities that's creating for the United States Defense Forces, but mainly it's problems in that uh, we don't have resources to uh, to patrol that area. We have very few icebreakers for those places that have ice left during the winter time, so we don't have full access. Both the Soviet Union and the Chinese are building icebreakers right now. Wonder why. They're not doing it for the South China Sea. I'll assure you that. Russia's already planted a flag up there and claimed this and that. We know the Chinese are really good at planting flags or are claiming parts of land that wouldn't otherwise be there. It is it is for the continental, the landmass of the United States, the internal threat to us, uh, Inside our borders, it's the one that's probably the scariest for us. We're not worried about them coming into New York or San Francisco, but that is an unguarded border. We do not have resources up there. We do, you know, we have navies that guard on all sides, but that is an unguarded and uncontested ground right now. It's pretty bothersome to, but we won't say scary, but it's pretty bothersome to the United States military to recognize our exposure in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. obviously needs to respond to both external and internal climate emergencies and different departments involved. I assume internal would be handled by the Department of Homeland Security. Externally, we're talking about the Department of State, the Department of Defense, perhaps, um, you know, inter- intelligence yeah, that's, systems. That's a, that's a good point to bring up because quite honestly, from when we look at the the magnitude of things that we're going to have to do, uh, particularly associated with uh, hurricanes and other extreme weather events, fighting fires and stuff. The rule set as to what 
the DOD can do with its military folks, what you can do with National Guard, and how you interact with these others, uh, it could be cleaned up a lot. Katrina showed us that. We, do, we didn't shine very brightly in the way we responded to Katrina. But quite honestly, we were fighting a war at that time, too. And, and that complicates things when you're actually doing something like that as a military. In one of your papers, I, I, you noted that diff, with different um, U.S. agencies having responsibility for internal and external climate change responses, that leadership would need to come from an overarching leader, you know, somebody across departments. Do we have that person in place yet? Is there any plans to have a person like that? No, we don't have a person like that in charge. Uh, you know, we have we have been organized and very successfully. For a very long time, you have the department. So you've got the Department of State, Department of Defense, uh, transportation, all of these. One way of looking at it, those are like stovepipes. They feed the whole system. They bring money in, then they get people, then they build up the resources to do their job. Anybody who's been around Washington knows we love our stovepipes and we hate to get out of our lanes. They don't play well together. That's every time we do one of these disasters like Katrina, we end up with very, very strong friction points. Well, you can't do that. You can't have National Guards there. You can't have, the, the biggest one is federal troops. What we can do as federal troops inside the United States is quite limited. We need to rethink all of that. And my, my final analysis was saying that one of the people who manages one of those stovepipes is put in charge of all the others. That won't work. There will, there will always be uh, conflicts between that. You have to go a level above that and say all departments have to answer to this person for the analysis and the final book stops. Somebody's got to make a decision of what we're going to do. Otherwise, I don't think it would work, but we haven't gotten to that yet. That's my understanding of, uh, we do have that now for climate change, in my view. I think that's the, uh, the Honorable Kerry, I think, has taken that position. But he has to bring those other people, you know, for climate change. He's got to bring the Department of Energy together, transportation together, Department of Defense together, and, and, and put together a strategic plan uh, with short, medium, and long-term goals and objectives and you got to have metrics of how you're doing on that. This is, natural disasters are, I think, going to be a component of that. But I think it's the amount of damage we're going to see from natural disasters as the, as the earth warms, as it's going to for the next 20 years, even if we could stop adding more uh, carbon emissions, it, it's, it's going to be very challenging for us as a rich nation to be able to provide security for our own people. And harder for the poor nations. As I pointed out earlier, they can't provide them water and sanitation right now without the disasters when they urbanize. They haven't been able to keep up with the needs there. It's, a, it's an ominous task. 
Let's look at, um, let's flip this a little bit. We've been talking about the military's role in um, responding to climate change and stuff. What is the military's responsibility to reduce climate change? I mean, the military burns a lot of fossil fuels. They've got a huge carbon footprint. You were just talking about desert storm and all the bottled water. I mean, the plastics going into the environment. What's being addressed there and what more needs to be addressed by the military? Well, I'm going to put this as an opportunity, Bob. That's how I'm going to describe this. Another one of my young military students, when I was at the Command and General Staff College, he was a logistician and he was a Marine Corps officer. He was a Marine Corps Reserve. So what he took was he looked at an infantry battalion of Marines deployed in Afghanistan. Look at their fuel consumptions, uh, where they use this energy, and, and how costly it was, both in, in money but in blood, to get the fuel to these people that are out at forward operating bases. Then he took, and where they were using the fuel, he looked at opportunities to deal with that. The biggest use uh, in Afghanistan was for the HVAC systems inside the fences. When I was stationed in Afghanistan, lucky me, Right outside my window were five generators uh, burning uh, diesel fuel day and night. Five massive generators, bigger than you've seen over here, all night long, all day long. He looked at that. He looked at the tentage that they were used and the new tentage that had insulation and stuff. He was able to, for that one battalion deployed in a month, using this technology that was already in the system, but hadn't made it to all the installations yet, save 80,000 gallons a month in one battalion, three battalions brigade, three brigades. So we're up to nine for a division that's deployed. We're talking the opportunity to save hundreds of thousands of gallons a month of fuel with existing technologies not looking at the new things. And we're doing a lot of research. Like there's, I think they're, they've set up so that they can do a fob that generates its own energy and as a byproduct creates water. Because the other thing you have to haul to those places is water. Water, yes. Because we don't go out and drill holes and, and put deep wells in every time we, we set up one of these installations. And typically we don't have available water because if we have available water, we'd have to steal it from the locals. And then we got another enemy we got to deal with. <laughs> you, you said 80,000 gallons of diesel. Can you convert that to a percentage? I mean, how many, how many gallons of diesel does a battalion use? Uh, it was way over 50% reduction. 50%. So that's a major percentage. And then if you get into where you're using solar and some of these others, you can get it down to... The, the goal is uh, a carbon-free infrastructure. Now, that, we still haven't dealt with the the combat tactical vehicles that's not the biggest burner of it it's the constant use of energy inside the, the fob to run the electronics to run the air conditioning to run the hospitals and all of that uh, and just to focus on that so there are opportunities all over the place where the military can really really lower their footprint yeah one year you should go after we should go after first is the united states air force they're the biggest single use of fuel in the United States. Bigger than UPS, bigger than, I, I don't know if they're still bigger than Amazon, but Amazon has made a lot of their fleets non-carbon. They're, they're, they're 
electric. The uh, technology is there. We just need to move in that direction. Yeah. So I consider a great opportunity there for the military to make it more operable and to make us much more efficient, effective. In, in Afghanistan, the easiest thing in the world to do is to recognize that the Americans are going to have three trucks rolling through here uh, twice a week carrying fuel from the main base out to their forward operating base. And there's only one road in and one road out when you're in Afghanistan most times. That's the easiest target you can Easy have. Target. Yeah. The easiest target in the world. It's, it's about saving lives first. Mm -hmm. It's about saving money. Uh, and it's about being more operable. So they're all saying it's time to change. I know you stay in, in contact with, with strategic leaders around the world. What's the latest chatter you're hearing? I guess we're, we're still concerned that there's, there's no sense of momentum. The reports keep getting published and IPCC keeps publishing, but we don't see the call to action that we would like to see. And, and that's, that's, not, that's an international view of the world. I mean, we see uh, Australia is kind of backing, backing off. And that's one of the places, that, by my view, that seems to be most impacted right now from the impacts of climate change. They're really suffering down there. Water is drying up faster than other places. It's geography again. Like I said in my, my initial work, it, it's going to be spatially distributed very unevenly across the world the damages that are going to be caused. Uh, so I'm not happy that we haven't done as much as I would like to see in the United States, but other places in the world, I think that same call is coming out. You're seeing that in Europe too, I think. And Europe isn't the, the, the huge uh, consumer that we, India and China and Russia are those before. Uh, what can our listeners do? I mean, you mentioned call to action. What, what can our listeners to do to help? They, they, first of all, recognize this is absolutely apolitical. It doesn't matter what kind of badge you are, who you voted for, or anything like this. Uh, this is something that's critical to the continued success of us as a democratic nation. And the only way the world is going to change if America is one of the leaders. It's been that way for the last hundred plus years. If America is willing to step up and lead, both in what we say, but more so of what we do, then we could start seeing that call to action that, that I, I and other military leaders from the countries that I, are con I am connected with, uh, we can start seeing it happen. Uh, it's, you know, we need to have honest diplomatic relationship with people to uh, express to the Russians, to the Chinese, to the Indians, uh, to the major powers of the world that we all have to join together. This isn't like, you know, the cats, got to lose, but the dogs have to, have to win. It's not that anymore. It, it, it's that we're going to have to all work together. We can disagree on many other things. That's fine. Styles of government, other things, but we're going to have to get over that and past that 
to recognize the existential threat that this is to us in the world. Um, and that's the only thing that'll happen, but that we gotta get the United States to do the part that it has always taken. So can you recommend some websites for people who wanna learn more about strategic defense impacts or other global climate related issues? I'm a member, a founding member of the Global Military Advisory Council, Farmage. That's G-M-A-C-C-C dot O-R-G. They publish my stuff, stuff from the, our, our director who's in Bangladesh. Uh, another board member is from, uh, was the head of uh, security and climate for England. He was a two-star admiral in the, in the British Navy that they appointed for that like 10 years ago. They established a military climate expert to look at the questions that you and I have been talking about for the last year. Uh, so that's a place where it is specifically about security. Uh, on the GMAC uh, website is the recent report that we put together for uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I think that's a good read, all right? Uh, I've got a bias. The education that section was the one that I, I prepared but I am a teacher, so that's, that's what I do. Uh, but you, you can get a good perspective and you'll see the uniformity in understanding the science uh, and how it impacts the military. And, and whether you're talking to me or one of our members is a former head of uh, Department of Defense in Pakistan. Is, this is critical enough that we have meetings and we have a four-star general from India a general from Nepal, uh, a former general and uh, director of defense from Pakistan, uh, a leader from Bangladesh, all sitting at the same table. No other issue would bring them to the same table. Uh, politically, it, it's not a, a common ground for any of us, but uh, on the, the one question of how climate change is affecting all of our security, we're all at the table. Thank you. I want to thank Brigadier General King for joining us today, and I want to thank our listeners. This is the Climate Hour. I'm your host, Bob Grove.